This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at Patreon.com and by N Plus One Magazine, which features some of today's most urgent and exciting left political writing, essays, fiction, and cultural criticism. N Plus One's brand new issue, Headcase, is now available in print and online, and it is full of great pieces that are perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Spade Work by political theorist and friend of the dig, Alyssa Battistoni, whose stellar and mind-bending interview with Donna Haraway appeared on the show last week. In the essay, Battistoni discusses her work as a union organizer at Yale in the face of institutional and political opposition and reflects on the lived experience of organizing. You have to learn to speak differently, writes Battistoni to speak as a different version of yourself. This means discarding many of your most familiar habits. This month, Dig listeners can take 25% off a year subscription to N Plus One. Go to nplusonemag.com slash the dig to subscribe and enter the dig, no spaces, at checkout. You'll get three issues plus full access to the magazine's online archive and free entry to readings and events, all for less than $3 a month. I love M Plus One, and that is a really good deal. That's N-P-L-U-S-O-N-E-M-A-G dot com slash the dig. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. We're not typically taught that the history of American slavery is also the history of capitalism, and that the history of capitalism is, by the same token, fundamentally rooted in enslaved labor and the murderous trade in human property. I, for one, grew up thinking that slavery was something bad that the South did because of a moral failing and character flaw called racism. But, as Barbara Fields put it in her classic 1990 New Left Review essay, Slavery, Race, and Ideology in the United States of America, quote, The object was to produce cotton, or sugar, or rice, or tobacco, not to produce white supremacy. White supremacy, however, was still no doubt produced, and in great quantities. And so racism became a force that not only continues to serve capitalist political economic purposes today, but that also, in turn, decisively shapes the capitalist order. And so when we hear debates that misleadingly pit racism against class exploitation, as though struggling against one is at odds with struggling against the other, it's instructive to return to the inextricably intertwined roots of both in the colonization and industrialization of the territory that became the United States of America. This is why Howard Zinn's People's History and so many left classics lead with the promise of tossing out the conventional wisdom 
and giving you the truth instead. Marxist analysis, at its core, is about explaining the system's mystification and doing its demystification in the service of overthrowing that system. That, in essence, is the whole digging metaphor behind the name of this show. Remarkably, however, people often think that slavery was irrelevant to capitalism, or even that it was an obstacle to capitalism's full development. Which is a weird idea, given that enslaved labor-grown cotton was the country's most valuable export, and that the capital stored in enslaved people was greater than all of the country's factories and railroads combined. But those fundamentally economic institutions were also fundamentally race and racism-making institutions as well. The transatlantic slave trade, through which at least 12.5 million enslaved Africans were transported west from the 16th through the 19th century, was, as Marcus Redeker argued, also a technology for making Wolof Muslims Biafran farmers and Akan soldiers into the racial category of Negroes, and thus also into labor maximally commodified into a peculiarly cruel human asset, depreciating yet reproductive. By the same token, slavery's capitalism created whiteness, which, alongside its ugly sibling nationalism, remains the most potent vehicle for reactionary, cross-class solidarity today. Reducing slavery to racism as narrowly construed as bad thoughts in people's heads reduces the true magnitude of racism's power. It means that all we have to overcome is something ideological, which we could do following that logic by changing people's minds. The truth is that we must engage in the hard collective work of rooting out and overturning structures of domination, simultaneously and inseparably ideological and economic, racist and capitalist, that were built into this country's core, and into the core of today's world as a whole, from the get-go. I conducted six interviews on capitalism and slavery at the DIG's recent Slavery's Hinterlands Symposium. I'm posting them as two separate episodes. This first of two episodes begins with historian Linford Fisher, who explains that the English settlement of North America was a settler colonial project that required genocidally dispossessing indigenous people of their lands. What you might not know is that a central tactic for that dispossession, in New England and Virginia alike, was the threat and actual enslavement of Native people, including the widespread practice of forcing Native youth to labor in English homes. In other words, slavery, colonialism, and capitalism were always premised on family separation. To free up labor and land— the social bonds that stitch together alternative and oppositional life worlds had to be torn apart. The enslavement of indigenous people then also built a bridge to the enslavement of Africans that would define the English colonial and later U.S. economy until emancipation. My next interview in this episode, with historians Christy Clark Pujara and Joanne Mellish, 
picks up where my interview with Fisher leaves off. Slavery wasn't just the South's peculiar institution. It was also the bedrock of the Northern economy. It was Northerners, and Rhode Islanders in particular, who ran the transatlantic slave trade. And the triangular trade between West Africa and the West Indies was the bedrock of the New England economy. And then came New England's Industrial Revolution, one of the most important events in the history of capitalism, which was capitalized by profits made from the slave trade. From then on, the northern textile industry depended upon slavery for its profits twice over. Northern mills were a major market for southern cotton picked by enslaved people, and northern industry then provisioned the south with textiles and other goods. The politics of slavery ultimately divided North and South. But this was a contradiction within a slave labor-powered American capitalist system, not a conflict between two different systems, some mythologized contest between free and slave labor. And then, to round out today's episode, I speak with historian Emily Owens about sexual labor under slavery. Slavery, as I discussed with Dorothy Roberts many episodes back, was no doubt an economic and racist institution. But it was also very necessarily about gender. The laws that established that the children of an enslaved woman would also be a slave not only perpetuated slavery as an economic institution, they also appropriated enslaved women's reproduction to create new capital in perpetuity. What, Owen's work explores, did this all mean for women for whom, in brothels or the home, sex was work? On the next episode, I'll have two more interviews looking at the big-picture questions of slavery, capitalism, revolution, and colonialism, and also an interview with a group of public historians who teach about slavery today. Okay, but before we get rolling— This is the part of the show where I ask you for your support at patreon.com slash the dig. If you've been thinking about contributing, and if you're one of, and I'm estimating here, between 18 and 30,000 people who regularly listen to the show but have not yet donated, now would be a great time to do so. We send books to people who contribute and have all sorts of other gifts. But the point I want to emphasize here is that the show needs your support if we're going to keep going strong. If you love this show and can afford to do so, please contribute. What do we spend our money on? Well, for one, providing all of our episodes for free so that those people who can't afford to support us can still listen. We also just built a brand new website at the Dig Radio. Our website has our entire archive for free, searchable by topic and by guest, and soon we'll be adding transcripts. Help us keep making this show better by contributing at p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. And also check out thedigradio.com. It's great. And one last thing, I'm hosting a Patreon-only live stream as an experiment Tuesday, May 21st at 6 p.m. 
The whole point of our fundraising is to ensure that all of our podcasts are unpaywalled and available to all. But we do have some patron-only treats, and this is one of them. So if you are a patron, check out the post about the live stream on our Patreon page. And if you haven't donated yet and want to ask me anything during this live stream, contribute now. I have no idea if people will find this live stream interesting or useful, but I do love talking to listeners, so I am pumped to hear from all of y'all. Okay, let's get this started with Linford Fisher, a professor of history at Brown University. He is the author of The Indian Great Awakening, Religion and the Shaping of Native Cultures in Early America, and the co-author of Decoding Roger Williams, the lost essay of Rhode Island's founding father. Fisher is currently leading a digital project called The Database of Indigenous Slavery in the Americas and finishing a book-length project tentatively titled America Enslaved on Native American Enslavement in English Colonies in North America and the Caribbean and later in the United States. Linford Fisher, welcome to The Dig. Thank you. I appreciate that. Slavery and the threat of enslavement were central to English war against indigenous people in this region, both in the Pequot War, which went from 1636 to 1638, and also the King Philip's War from 1675 to 1676. Explain how enslavement and its threat functioned as both a war tactic and also as a means of territorial dispossession? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, it, so in some ways, it's tough to talk about the two simultaneously because so much time had taken place between Pequot War in the 1630s and yes, King Philip's War in yeah. the 1670s. Um, but it is clear that both the sort of tactics of warfare in terms of like this total war that was being conducted against the Pequots in the 1630s is shocking to some of the English allies like the Narragansetts and the Mohegans. Um, but then also the way in which there's this sort of um, drive by the English to not just kill as many uh, Native men, especially as possible, but also to claim Nate Pequot specifically uh, and their allies, Pequot women and children as as captives and then to enslave them. And the Narragansetts and Mohegans wanted a share uh, in some cases of these captives, but they put them to very different uses uh, most of the time. And so there is this initial shock that and this registering of reality that English colonization uh, comes with this sort of like uh, extreme total violence and enslavement. Not that that was brand new, uh, there is a much deeper history uh, that is, goes back into even the 16th century of Europeans coming to New England, um, you know, up and down the coast, stopping, trading, enslaving, killing. Uh, it's not new in the Pequot War, but its intensity, its uh, intentionality, and the outcomes uh, sets a certain kind of tenor that resonates in New England uh, and elsewhere, I think, for generations to come. And so when you get to King Philip's War, not only do you have the memory uh, of native groups of that war, of the enslavement, of the killing, 
But you also have other kinds of legal mechanisms that have been established throughout the 17th century between the 1630s and the 1670s that also produces a threat of enslavement. So you see colonial authorities in Massachusetts and Connecticut uh, and even Rhode Island punishing not just natives, but also natives for certain kinds of crimes, for example. And the threat of, of shipping people off to the Caribbean as slaves, uh, especially natives as slaves, um, is something that builds in the 17th century and really peaks during King Philip's War in 1675-1676. You write that the threat of enslavement convinced hundreds of native people to turn themselves in, but even then they were still sometimes enslaved or had their children taken from them to labor as servants in English households. And family separation then was a core part of the English war and, and terror strategy, really, which is something that's obviously has a very ugly resonance today. This was a tactic, you write, as early as the Pequot War, after burning down villages on Block Island, the English demanded that the Pequots send their children to Boston as a guarantee of their good behavior. What was the strategic purpose of stealing Native children from both wartime enemies and allies to labor in English homes? And how did Native people view and resist these separations? Yeah, it's, it's on the one hand complicated, the other hand straightforward. Uh, so the more straightforward sort of um, range of reasons why this is taking place, uh, you know, one is labor. There's also English traditions of appropriating uh, orphan and uh, homeless child labor in England as well. So they're building on this kind of tradition, but also amplifying it in the specific context of Native Americans. Uh, so partially it's labor, but there's a deeper ideology of colonization and settler, settler colonialism in particular that is um, about destabilizing Native communities and family structures through these kinds of mechanisms. Um, and there's a deeper ide ideology that gets back to land, which I hope we get to eventually. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's a classic method of colonial control, whether it's through uh, enslaved African families or whether it's through uh, Native American families and communities. Um, one of the easiest ways to destabilize and, and disrupt family relations, network um, networks of kinship, and also the stability of, of successive generations to actually um, grow and multiply and to, uh, to be self-sufficient is to undermine um, those kinds of family networks. And so you see this over and over again, um, uh, whether it's in Virginia or the Carolinas or in other places as well, it's almost a universal impulse to focus on indigenous children and to take them into households, to try to convert them, to sort of erase nativeness and to anglicize them or another imperial context to make them more French or Spanish or whatever else. Um, and it's, it's really, uh, in some ways, effective. Um, in other ways, I think it, it is, it, it, there's blowback in some ways as well. And Native parents, uh, for the most part, although there are some cases where Native parents see this outside of wartime, see this as an advantage to have their child be you know, indentured uh, into a certain trade or something like that, or apprentice into a certain trade. In the context of these wars, this is deeply disruptive and disturbing. And parents call this out as such. And as you hinted at, there's a motivation for ongoing war and resistance through some of these practices. When colonial governments promise leniency 
and they say, if you surrender yourselves, uh, even to non-combatants, and then they come in and then they're parceled out as uh, short-term slaves or, or servants is the word they use um, up until the age of 20, 21, 25, 26. This creates tons of, of ill will and resentment uh, amongst um, these different constituencies. Yeah, you, you write that that King Philip reportedly sent sent secret messages to, to Christian Indians warning that the English designed in the conclusion to destroy them all or send them out of the country for bond slaves. And indeed, they were right. In Massachusetts, Christian Indians were expelled to Deer Island and Long Island in the middle of Boston, Boston Harbor. And you write that this all constitutes the first organized resistance to slavery in the English colonies. Meanwhile, there was really no anti-slavery opinion amongst English people until sometime after the war. How does this fact force us to rethink the history of, of what we think of as abolitionist or anti-slavery politics in what would become the United States? Yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, it's a great, great chance to talk about sort of the way the field has started to reconceptualize uh, anti-slavery activism and, and resistance in different kinds of ways. Um, I think even within the field of, of you know, black slavery in, or African slavery in the Americas and the United States in particular and the English colonies, there's a growing sense, um, as with the Haitian Revolution and so forth, there's other places that you can point to very, very specific ways in which the, the groundswell of activism and resistance was coming from the enslaved people themselves, right? Uh, and I think the story of abolitionism has been told more, you know, these great white saviors that come in and kind of try to outlaw this in certain ways using parliaments or other kinds of colonial processes or states, legislatures and passing laws. And, and that's not wrong, but what's interesting to me is that you find very specific ways in which they're our, our native voices, our African voices, very, very early on, um, that I think should count in this history of anti-slavery activism. And when you have enslaved uh, or, or people who are fearing enslavement, or when you have enslaved people who are petitioning local governments for the freedom of their enslaved sons and daughters, when you have people basically taunting these English Christians uh, saying, you know, how can you, how can you do this? You know, you you are supposed to be teaching us how to love our neighbor and 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 conduct ourselves in a right way. This predates the Quakers in 1688. You know, uh, this predates other kinds of origin stories we might have. Um, and even if you fast forward to the 1760s and 1770s, um, some of my work has been trying to show the way in which the, the questions surrounding Native American slavery are also factoring into these other great debates about slavery and ending the slave trade uh, in a transatlantic way as well. So I think that there's ways that we can continue to rewrite this history that um, includes Native Americans, but also highlights um, the voices of the enslaved or potentially enslaved themselves. You mentioned that we hope that you hoped we would get to talk about land. So I want to ask you about that. What impact, both concretely and in terms of the conquest of territory and ideologically, did the English victories in the Pequot and King Philip's Wars? have in terms of the territorial dispossession they accomplished on the expansion and consolidation of colonial power, which became the building blocks for the territorial conquest and expansion that would ultimately create the United States that we're 
sitting, talking within today? Yeah, I think land is central, obviously. And in a way, in the way that we tell our, our national history as, as a country, um, and I think this is true in other places as well, that process of dispossession has almost become naturalized. Like, of course, of course we took native lands. That's, that's just what happened. But there's a really important way that we need to unpack that and to denaturalize it and to think about the processes through which that took place and also to think about the tangible results in the way that led directly to the processes you're talking about, about nation building, about wealth accumulation, about commodity production, about uh, supporting transatlantic slavery and slave trading and, and trade to the Caribbean and also a local and regional expansion. And these two colonial wars in New England, like other colonial wars in Virginia or Maryland or the Carolinas, native slavery is uh, at every point tied to these expansionistic impulses. That, um, and in part, it's a practical quandary, right? You have fairly large native nations sitting on really desirable lands, and if you can't twist their arms in some ways to sell that land, um, in some cases you might provoke a war against them, but in other cases there's a happy, from their perspective, coincidence between these two processes where colonial wars, enslavement of natives is a part of the same process of clearing land that leads to colonial development. And you can see this directly in New England. Um, after the Pequot War, um, the same stretch of land that the Pequots and their allies uh, basically resided upon and, and used the land for generations um, in Connecticut, South Central, and, and even down to New Haven. You can see towns after 1637, 1638, English towns are founded all down that coastline. The very same land the Pequots and their allies had is what becomes the expansive um, sort of um, outreach and, and founding of towns in Connecticut. After King Philip's War, the same way, um, there's actually a huge tussle between the colony of Rhode Islands and Connecticut over this land that was formerly Narragansett. Uh, and land is parceled off to English veterans from King Philip's War in Connecticut, parts of Rhode Island, um, land becomes a really central commodity that then is used to actually develop plantations and develop farms and to send those resources, uh, whether it's horses you're raising or, you know, corn and potatoes and lumber off to the Caribbean to support other larger processes of enslavement as well. And you put your work on New England, you also zoom out and put it in a much larger context of the Atlantic world. And stepping back a little bit, a lot of English settler colonial ideology was all about making a sharp contrast with what they, what the English portrayed as Spanish colonial barbarity. The Massachusetts Bay Company's official seal portrayed a nearly naked native man standing alone imploring, come over here and help us. And that alluded to the, the biblical passage in Acts where the apostle Paul in a dream, receives a similar message from the Macedonians. And today, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts basically still has the same seal minus those words, but it looks otherwise identical, which is remarkable and revealing in terms of the naturalization that you mentioned of the entire process of settler colonialist dispossession. You examine a little-remembered, I had never heard of it, Puritan colony off the coast of Nicaragua called Providence Island, which today is part of Colombia and is called Providencia, Isla de Providencia. And you write about how they are Puritans, very much like and very connected 
to the Puritans who were here in New England, attempted to build a Spanish-style slave-powered plantation economy. My question is, first, what role did the English's negative fixation on Spanish cruelty play in justifying English colonization? And second, does the fact that the English ultimately matched Spanish barbarity and cruelty, does that reveal something important about the material rather than purely ideological factors that shaped settler colonialism Mm -hmm. and slavery? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the English are are interesting to think about in terms of of how they position themselves vis-a-vis the Spanish. And, uh, you know, of course, uh, by the time... Jamestown is founded in 1607. There's a lot of water under the bridge in terms of Spanish and Portuguese colonization and a lot of uh, ability of English colonists and magistrates um, on both sides of the Atlantic to sort of um, see what the Spanish have done and to see themselves as doing something very different. So from the beginning, they do position themselves as sort of uh, the, not the saviors of the Americas in some ways, but like the, the, the people who are going to do things differently and, and correctly. Um, and so they, yeah, they want to actually evangelize natives. They want to not do the same kinds of things. They don't want to mistreat natives in the same way that had been described so, so beautifully and horrifically, uh, beautifully is the wrong word, horrifically, um, but eloquently uh, by Las Casas. Uh, and his uh, brief history of the destruction of the Indies had been translated into English by And people were reading this. By, this by was, the 1580s. These images were circulating yeah. a lot in English. Images are circulating. The, the sort of descriptions are circulating. And by 1580, you have it in English, the whole thing, um, or at least most of it. And so they're aware of all this. And they want to do things differently. And so to your point, the really interesting thing about this history is that the English come, and in some ways they try to do things differently, but in the end it kind of starts to feel the same. And it starts very early, actually. I mean, even the early motivation in the 1580s by these English you know, pro-colonization factions in England, uh, the Hacklets, for example, the way that they try to drum up support for colonization is basically to say, hey, this will be really good for the empire. We can go find gold and silver just like the Spanish. We can go you know, capitalize relations and trade relations with Native Americans just like the Spanish. And so all these early attempts to settle colonies that failed, uh, whether it's the Guiana or you know, the main coast, uh, they had at, you know, at their heart really this sort of impulse, especially the Caribbean ones, had at their the, the center of them this sort of Spanish-like impulse for exploitative you know capitalist, proto-capitalist kind of development of, of resources. And, and revealingly, before they can get their own hold in the Caribbean, they're running around robbing as privateers right. yeah. Spanish and Portuguese vessels, stealing enslaved Africans. Right. And some of these same people who end up in our national narratives about you know godly Puritans and so forth, they're the same people that are funding these other projects and promoting these other projects. And so the reason why historians of sort of early English colonization like to compare Massachusetts with Providence Islands because you do have a lot of the same backers. You do have a lot of the same religious impulses, and yet they manifest in very different ways on the surface. 
But there are connections. Some enslaved Pequots, uh, after the Pequot War, get sent down to Providence Island, and they are sort of traded in exchange for cotton and tobacco and enslaved Africans and brought back to Boston in 1638. And those are the first, or some of the first? Some of the first that are sold in, uh, enslaved Africans that are sold in Boston, New England. Um, and so you do have these really strong connections. Same with Bermuda. There's a really strong connection between Massachusetts and New England more generally in Bermuda. And so I think part of my sort of purpose in, in revealing and highlighting all of this is to show that, um, first of all, these, these deep connections do exist, but you can't isolate out one little corner that kind of fits our national narrative in what is now the United States and separate that out from all these other processes, the founding of Barbados and Bermuda and the Bahamas eventually and Jamaica especially, um, and attempts to establish colonies elsewhere as well. Um, these are all interrelated. The impulses are, are, are deeply embedded within uh, colonial processes. And that's why you eventually, I think, see the kind of violence and enslavement that you have even in Massachusetts, even in New England, um, and also in Virginia and elsewhere. Because that's, it, it is, as you're hinting at and, and asking, I think, uh, and stating, there is something about that process that very quickly uh, you realize it's hard to remain true to whatever ideals you might profess, right? Um, because at its core, settler colonialism is extractive. It is exploitative. It, it is um, not about really um, equality and <laughs> building these relationships that we might value today that are more affirming and you know equal in some ways. Um, it, it's a really pernicious process that uh, taints everybody and everything in the process. And we should mention that it wasn't just uh, the Puritans, but also the man who most famously rebelled against them, Rhode Island's founder, Roger Williams, who to this day is celebrated as a champion of the ideal of religious freedom. He presided over the execution of indigenous rebels. He requested a very particular slave captive for himself, you write. In Pequot War, yeah. And uh, Williams and other men who took the lead in Rhode Island's defense also received a share of the proceeds from the sale of enslaved Native people. So this support for indigenous slavery was absolutely hegemonic amongst English settlers. Hegemonic is maybe too strong, but it, it is, uh, there are only a few points of pushback, I think. So John Elliott is, is one of these people. He's a missionary to Native Americans, uh, and he famously writes this protest where he says, this is wrong, we should not be enslaving people. His protest is actually, and historians often miss this, it's not so much against slavery in, in general, although I think he disagreed with enslaving natives, but he was against enslaving native surrenderers. So p natives who were not combatants, who were coming in to Plymouth Colony, to Massachusetts, to Rhode Island, to Connecticut, and they too were being parceled off as limited-term slaves. This is what he was really upset about. Um, but yes, it's it is uh, there's I wouldn't say it's a universal agreement, but the ideology is is very um, very widespread, and it comes partially out of this just war kind of theory from the fourth century within wider Christianity that the right of the conquerors, if the war is just, is to have the bodies and labor of, of the people they've conquered, and so captives and and slavery post just war was easily and, and widely um, adhered to and justified in their minds. You know, there's always the danger of, of rom romanticizing uh, pre-colonial 
indigenous life, but there is a lot of evidence that that these sorts of European practices, both in terms of the enslavement, in terms of the family separation, in terms of just this form of total war and and massacre that was so uh, normal for for European war making in Europe, and that they brought here, was was utterly foreign and terrifying to to indigenous people in, in North America. It's really complicated. It's a big controversy, I think, in the yeah. field in some ways. I mean, there are, there are pockets and places where I think that was not known and was harf, you know, terrifying and new. There's other places, you know, whether it's in uh, parts of North America. Nicaragua, or, the or mosquitoes. Central South yeah, America. Very, um, they called their enemy uh, tribe slave meat. Yes, and, and very, very quickly set up um, – one of the the biggest biggest site of English uh, in Indian slave trading in the Caribbean uh, in the 17th and 18th centuries as well, and so I, I think you're you're right that it was um, in some ways it's, it's a European imposition. There are pre-contact many examples of you know intertribal warfare, of of slaughter, of captivity um, for sure, but there's also many many examples of um, other ways of of dealing with enemies that doesn't involve exploitative slavery mechanisms. Like uh, subsidiary incorporation into, like into systems. Incorporation like tributary arrangements yeah. where you might uh, not actually kill many people or, or captive to take captive many people, but you might want them to remain on their land but then feed you resources, right? So other kinds of arrangements that you might uh, set up, which the English did some of that as well. Um, but there's no doubt that there's there's a different kind of imposed labor regime and slavery regime, I think, that is uh, distinct and sustained and involves sort of the, the, the building up and growing of this exploitative settler colonial capitalistic structure that's, that is um, new in terms of the history of the Americas prior to the coming Europeans. My last question is I want to ask, and on the subject of the topic of indigenous people's resistance, because something that I found very striking in your work and that I did not know about was that when the English first arrived at Jamestown in Virginia, another place that you write about, it was the first English settlement in the Americas to survive more than a year or two. Native people who live nearby were already deeply familiar with what Europeans were up to in terms of enslavement and massacres. They were not, as I think is often portrayed in, for example, Massachusetts's seal, just sort of passively curious people in awe of the white newcomers. And the same was true in in New England. In, in 1620, when the Puritans, later known as the Pilgrims, arrived, they were met with immediate attack because natives already had ample experience with with, Europe, with Europeans. And in Virginia, the sachem of the Powhatan Empire maintained a network of native messengers stretching from Newfoundland all the way to the West Indies to stay informed about European activities. And so they quite reasonably tried to wipe out the English once they arrived. What did indigenous people know and understand about Europeans before the English had, had ever set foot in their territory? 
Yeah, I think they know they knew more than we assume uh, from our perspective now that they might have known. Um, and whether or not it's it's networks of, of runners and and people who are informing, or whether it's sort of um, uh, material exchanges as well. There's some great archaeological work that shows that far before people, native people inland, might have seen Europeans, they probably touched and felt and used European-made uh, objects like ship sails and repurpose them or iron, uh, you know, um, implements or copper pots or things like that. So that's that's fascinating in its own right. Um, but th- that's the more benign piece of this, right, is just the trade and the material items. Um, coastal natives, and you can imagine how this would happen, right, because there's a 100-plus years uh, between when Columbus arrives in the Bahamas in 1492, uh, for when between then and when you have the English actually making permanent settlements, and in between those those years, those intervening hundred plus years, the Spanish are trying to figure out if North America is a place they could they want to sort of you know uh, exploit as well. Uh, the Portuguese have their explorers come out. The English are kind of up and down the coastline. The French and the Dutch eventually. So, and one of the first thing they're trying to plunder at this point is knowledge. Is often often knowledge. And so when when all of these different imperial presences snatch natives off the coastline, that's one of the things they're trying to do is exploit the local knowledge that they're mapping, they're using, um, you know, native knowledge of, of good harbors or land or how, what kind of produce is on the land. Uh, so this is all a part of that process. So I think we imagine these pilgrims coming in 1620 or the, you know, Virginians or the English coming to Virginia, what they call Virginia and Jamestown in 1607, as sort of, again, think about our national narratives of this, these events as being these isolated things that happen from which everything else grows. And they are little dots in this other massive world of trade and commerce and knowledge and exploitation that take place. And I think once you understand them as starting points of sorts, but but really just dots on a much longer sort of line or, or in a much larger world of activity, um, it, it makes things look much different. And then who they're connected to, what they're doing to natives, what came before, what came after. Uh, take slavery, for example, uh, 1619, important point, a point, starting point. But 1619 can only be the starting point of slavery in America if we define America as what is now the United States. If we think about 1619 and the larger English empire, Back in the 1540s, 1550s, English merchants had been dabbling in the transatlantic slave trades. Uh, and even more close to 1619, um, 1614, there are English merchants, Thomas Hunt, who snatch 27, 28 uh, natives off the Cape Cod coast and take them, sell them as slaves in, in Spain, right? So slavery is, is much, much broader and much more widespread. Um, Bermuda has enslaved Africans and Indians in 1616, for example. Um, so it's interesting to think about how we define these things um, and, and the knowledge that both indigenous people would have had at the coming of, of Europeans, but also how we then frame these experiences and these events in terms of what it does for our own purposes uh, within a national context today. Well, Linford Fisher, thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate it. Linford Fisher is an historian at Brown and is currently finishing a book-length project tentatively titled America Enslaved, 
on Native American enslavement in English colonies in North America and the Caribbean, and later in the United States. Next up, Christy Clark Pujara and Joanne Mellish. Christy Clark Pujara is a professor of history in the Department of Afro-American Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and the author of Dark Work, The Business of Slavery in Rhode Island. She is currently working on a book tentatively titled Black on the Midwestern Frontier, From Slavery to Suffrage in Wisconsin. Joanne Mellish recently retired as a professor of history at the University of Kentucky and is currently a visiting scholar in the American Studies Department at Brown. She is the author of Disowning Slavery, Gradual Emancipation and Race in New England, 1780 to 1860. Christy Clark Pujara and Joanne Mellish, welcome to The Dig. Thank you for having me. Before we get into the North's deep entanglement with Southern plantation slavery, let's first talk about slavery as it existed within New England. In my interview with Linford Fisher, we talked about indigenous enslavement, with both initiated the institution of slavery in what would become the U.S. and also, by way of dispossessing Native land, created the the land basis for which this whole settler colonial slave-labored fuel economy upon which it could function. But the North was deeply involved with slavery on a lot of different levels, and those, and it changed over time. So let's start with that early period from settlement through just after the revolution, beginning with how New England's economy depended on the direct enslavement of Africans to labor in New England. For starters, explain the role that direct enslavement played in the North. One of the ways that the uh, New England colonies, and particularly Rhode Island, uh, became a maritime commercial powerhouse, little tiny state, mostly ocean, the ocean state, Uh, two islands in the middle, there's kind of just edges. It it was going to, if it was going to be um, successful, was going to be a commercial maritime um, state. And one of the things that, or colony, and one of the, the ways in which it, it made money was the, what are sometimes called the coasting trades or the provisioning trades to the, some a bit to the southern states, but heavily to the sugar colonies in the West Indies, the British colonies. And the use of enslaved labor in the southern part of Rhode Island, there, um, those laborers were uh, working um, in agriculture. They're producing... Um, they're producing horses that uh, are now extinct, the Narragansett Pacer that went to the West Indies. They uh, were um, raising sheep and cows whose milk was made into cheese. You can't ship milk, it spoils. How do you ship milk protein? You ship it as cheese. Um, the enslaved women worked in the dairies making the cheese. Um, and also uh, grain came from Rhode Island. Um, people, when I when I talk about that, people imagine, well, New England is a grain producer, but there's no Midwest. There isn't any there there other than New England, so southern Rhode Island. So there are plantations, um, and again, the word plantation acquires an association with slavery, but in fact, Plymouth is a plantation. It's a planting, right? But the... Um, the plantings in southern Rhode Island are 5,700 acres. 
The Stantons have 5,700 acres in, in Charlestown. Um, many of them are 1,000, 2,000 acres. What are you going to do to make those productive? You need a lot of labor. And, of course, it is easiest in a, a colony that is also running the slave trade to acquire enslaved people, um, along with enslaved native people who were already uh, there, as Lynn Fisher talked about. So it's interesting because um, how do we find evidence of, of enslaved workers? One of the ways, places we look is in wills and probates. And um, because enslaved are t- people are taxable property, a lot of people tend to palm off some of their enslaved people on their relatives, give them away before they die. So we know there we can we we know there were at least twenty five enslaved people on some of the the plantations in southern Rhode Island. Apocryphally, there's conversation about up to forty. I suspect there were more, um, but again. They're taxable property, so you 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 don't want them showing up in the records. So I suspect they were larger groups as well. I think that looking at slavery in Rhode Island is really informative because it reminds us that enslaved people weren't just employed working in cash crops, and that is the um, predominant theme of slavery throughout the Americas. And that's for a reason. The vast majority of enslaved people throughout the Americas were employed in cultivating a cash crop. But what made enslaved people so valuable was their variability and their utility. You could teach them to be a secretary. Um, They could load and unload ships. They could be a cooper. They could be a carpenter. They could be a sailmaker. So they were present in every facet of the economy. You are hard-pressed to find a trade or job that enslaved people were not performing in colonial Rhode Island. Tradesmen were among the larger group of slaveholders because what is better for a tradesman than to have somebody who you don't have to pay wages to who will never become a competition for you, who's just going to get better and better at what they do every year. And so... Enslaved people were doing everything. Oh, I also, I want to add the um, the problem of the notion um, until maybe 20 years ago, there was a, a popular idea in scholarship that uh, mostly rich people owned slaves. Um, especially in a place like Rhode Island, people in the port cities owned slaves who were wealthy people. And then the, the South County planters who, who are using enslaved labor in agricultural um, settings as well as in other ways are wealthy landowners. And so rich, rich people own slaves. That's because, again, one of the principal sources of evidence about um, slavery for a long time was wills and probates. People are old when they die with any luck. And um, I'm counting on that myself. And um, so they, they leave enslaved people in their, in their wills. When we started looking at daily journals of, of people, there are many uh, people who have enslaved workers who, who keep journals throughout their entire lives, you realize that it's not that rich men owned slaves. It's that slaves made men rich. 
you find a lot of people who, especially people who have no sons, uh, people who um, a son dies and like Hempstead in, in Connecticut, his son dies, he immediately goes out and purchases an enslaved man. That's one thing that I, I think is very important to realize that also it's the case that in New England, um, when people wanted to start businesses, the takeoff of capitalism, enslaved labor enables that. A man who, want, who, who has a farm and does his farm work and wants to get off the farm and start a sawmill, start a grist mill, who's going to replace his labor? an enslaved person, and then he goes off and makes, begins making a profit. I mean, I, I would say that slavery enables the takeoff of, pro, of capitalism. The last thing I think that is very important is the notion, oh, well, so many enslaved people are doing some sort of household labor. That's as though that's, that's a status symbol, as though that's decorative in some way. And first of all, I always ask people when I'm, when I'm giving talks about this, how many people do housework and feel decorative? But beyond that, household labor in the colonial era, a household is a productive unit. And again, as, as Christy just said, there are barrels to be made. There are water to be hauled. There's water to be hauled. There's wood to be chopped. There are gardens. There are orchards. There are, um, but but there are also there's equipment to be repaired. There's all kinds there's of soap labor to be made. Yes, it's and remarkable because it's, it's, it's such a degraded form labor. of labor today that retroactively we imagine well, it's that as a degraded form. It's treated as that's right. It's degraded in people's yeah. in in, yeah. in our political economy. Yeah. That's for some way, reason we see that as a status symbol. In the yeah, past. as as something that you can do without. And in this period, domestic work wasn't something you could do without. Like, if I don't have a cleaning company, my house can just be messy and a little smelly. But in the colonial period, that means who's making the candles uh, so you can see at night? Who's making the soap? Who's salting the meat and canning the vegetables? Like, this is essential to livelihood. And then, uh, as as you already alluded to, the Rhode Island sh- ships play an absolutely dominant role in the slave trade it, itself, enslaving voyages alongside the provisioning of plantations in, in West Indies and the South. Can you explain a little bit about that industry's centrality to the, the region and the state's economy? There is no economy in Rhode Island without the slave trade and the bilateral provisions trade. Everybody was employed in the business of slavery. You know, Rhode Island is, what, 30 by 40 miles, but more than 60% of every slave ship that left from a port in North America left from a port in Rhode Island. The bilateral trade was their lifeblood, and all you have to do is look at the political language that comes out of the American Revolution. They basically say, if they tell us who we can trade with, we are done. Like, we cannot function. Nobody in England or in New England wants their pork, cheese, potatoes, and grain. That surplus only has value in a place like the West Indies where you're feeding large populations of captive people. But then on top of that, um, when, when, when you say that, that everyone is involved, yes, again, who makes the barrels? Who cre- who, the rum? Who built uh, the ship? 
Who built the ship? Where did the masts come from? And who set them in place? Who provisions the crews on slaving ships uh, and provides provisions for the captives who will be brought back? But the, all of the uh, ancillary businesses are, are involved in the slave trade. It's also the case that um, a, another kind of mythology that was current in the scholarship until maybe the last, oh, 25 years, until um, David Eltis and company put together the transatlantic slave trade database, scholars thought that it was wealthy people alone who were invested in the slave trade, who owned the boats. But now, of course, we, we know when you look at what a risky business it was. It was not smart to own an entire slaving voyage because if the ship went down, you lost everything. So what you did was own 51% of it, maybe, or you and your brother owned together owned 52% of it, and then you sold shares. And ordinary tinsmiths and coopers and carpenters bought one or two shares in a slaving voyage the way um, my father was a factory worker. He would put together a little bit of money, and he would go out and buy like two shares of American Tell and Tell, or two shares of uh, Studebaker Packard, which he did. That was a mistake, right? But he would he would um, get together a little money and make an investment that would earn money. That's what ordinary people, artisans, artisans invested in the slave trade one or two shares in a slaving voyage and reaped profit from that. So everyone was involved in producing materials for it and everyone was involved, really everyone, in profiting from it. And I think that the bilateral trade between this provisions trade between New England and the West Indies um, hasn't received as much attention as it deserves, especially in the sense that Okay, they're selling these foodstuffs and, you know, candles and lumber in exchange for cash and molasses. And molasses is key for Rhode Island because that's how you distill rum. And rum becomes their number one ex export and it becomes a currency in and of itself. So something that is produced by enslaved people, it's enslaved people on the sugar plantations that are cultivating sugar that lead to the runoff, which is molasses that becomes the primary ingredient for the number one export in Rhode Island. And the currency for buying more enslaved people. Absolutely. The, the next period I want to discuss is emancipation, which is a, a long process in New England. If I have it right, the first instance is with the Revolutionary War when people are freed in exchange for fighting. In yes, the war. although I am so glad you brought that up because um, one of the things that um, textbooks talk about um, in Rhode Island and Connecticut, but differently, but in Rhode Island, the Rhode Island First. The Rhode Island First Regiment is a regiment of people who are freed to, to become promised freedom if, they, uh, if the owner allows the enslaved person to fight in the war and he survives it, um, he will be free. Great. Except Rhode Island offers 120 pounds currency in the future to every owner who will allow his enslaved person to enlist. People don't realize that is the colony of Rhode Island purchasing a mercenary force. That's a mercenary army. 
Now, in fact, people are fighting themselves for their own freedom. Um, they're distinct from, say, Hessians who are fighting for money for the British. But, but nonetheless, it's secondary to the it's, primary mercenary. It's it's, it's a it's a uh, it's a purchase because at that point, for even the idea of of freedom for um, for risking your life isn't seen as a valued or b something that the the slave owner ought to value the slave owner so wants the money they need to be compensated they need to, and so what what you get when you look at the in the Rhode Island archives the state archives um, the books of petitions to the legislature after the revolution petition after petition where's my money well of course there is no money it's after the revolution there's no cash and and most of those people do not get paid but nonetheless where's my money so, so that's I think a, 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 something that it isn't the the colony of Rhode Island saying these people will fight and then they will be free. These people will fight and then they will be free, and I will have paid for their risking their lives. I I think that's troubling and should receive a little and, more attention. And, and so, than emancipation it does. might not even be the right word. It's more expropriation with compensation ultimately, for a mercenary army that ultimately results in Atlantic right. change. But that's kind of like. Ancillary to the whole process. Right, exactly. Not for the person fighting. So I think that's important. Which reminds us how entrenched slavery was, that it wasn't just this thing that a few people were doing. It was concrete to how people thought society was ordered. The bigger moment for emancipation is the gradual emancipation law passed in— and I want to talk about that. —in 1784. (laughs) And so before we get to the North's deep involvement in slavery through manufacturing later, let's— Let's talk about that. I'd like you both to explain how support for gradual emancipation came about because it seems to me, and I could be entirely wrong, but just reading your work and other work preparing for this, that if for economic reasons, large-scale plantation slavery had taken hold in New England, that anti-slavery ideology would have never emerged in the North. Is that too cynical? No, um, but it fails, I think, to respectfully, to take Please. into account the, the, a number of factors. Number one, the, the plantations in South County um, get smaller and smaller and smaller. Why? Because there's no primogeniture in, in New England, in Rhode Island. In, in England, the oldest son inherits the same size land and the younger sons go off and do something else. In, in Rhode Island, people have four or five sons and they inherit and the land gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And as it gets smaller, the economies of scale that are available to have huge, that's huge, you know, numbers of sheep and cows and stuff, they, they, you lose those. That's number one. Number two, the revolution itself cuts off the provisioning trades. People forget that there are colonies from Nova Scotia to the West Indies, but they don't all revolt. Just the 13 in the middle revolt. Suddenly, there are British gunboats out preventing merchant ships from sending stuff to the, to the West Indies. But the third thing that I think is really important that people don't understand is that the, the growing sentiment that slavery maybe is wrong is very, very unlike the what later will be an abolition movement against Southern slavery. The Rhode Island movement, the movement among Quakers here, it's about sin. And as 
the Continental Army is losing the revolution in the first half of the revolution, it dawns on people, um, pe people like James Otis, that maybe God is angry about slavery. With Quakers, why does Moses Brown free his slaves? Because his wife dies, and he decides that maybe that's God's punishment for owning slaves. Now, why is that important? Because the New England impulse on the part of people who begin to emancipate their slaves individually, and Moses Brown starts a movement that ultimately results in the Gradual Emancipation Act in 1783 that goes into effect in 84, what they want to do is free themselves from sin. And the proof of this is there are several emancipation documents uh, that are very interesting, individual emancipation. A man named Caleb Green, who is a Quaker in Providence, one of the witnesses is Moses Brown. He emancipates, does an emancipation. It begins with having seen the divine light, so you know he's a Quaker. I um, wish to, I, I feel I must do this, I will free the one quarter of this slave named Peter that I own, the other three quarters, the other three quarters being owned by three other men. And the one half of a slave named Venture I own, who the other half being owned by somebody or other. And then he says, he, he actually has a sentence that's sort of, so I hope they enjoy the, 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 the freedom I've given them. And he signs it. Now, who's free from that document? Well, one person is free. Caleb Green is free. He's free of sin. The enslaved people are still, they were fully owned by four or three people, and now they're fully owned by three or two. But they're fully owned. Enjoy the freedom. What? My, I, when I use this with students, they always ask, well, did, doesn't that mean they got a third of their time off? No. <laughs> no, it doesn't. So the first abolition movement in New England is about freeing white people from sin, the white abolition movement. So you see, on the one hand, whites talking about sin, but you see petitions to the legislature by people of color saying, we have no wives, we have no children. We are, they are talking about the effect of enslavement on them. White people are almost never doing that. By the time we get the second abolition movement, the movement after 1831 for immediate abolition, William Lloyd Garrison directed toward those bad slave owners in the South, now, because it's somebody else doing it, it can become about the scars and the rape and the terrible circumstances because it's not them doing it. But when it's them doing it, it's never about that. Whereas it's on the part of black people, it's always about that. I like the example that Joanne is giving of the Quakers because I think it's important to remember that Quakers come to it. It takes them over a hundred years of questioning to come to it, you know, and that the come to the fact that they can't be good Christians and hold people in bondage. And, you know, revolutionary rhetoric uh, is playing into this, their idea of why there's such strife and these bad things have happened. Um, because I think for most people, they only think of Quakers as abolitionists instead of as a people who come to come to believe that they can't be good slaveholders, but it is about themselves, not enslaved people themselves. And when we're thinking about emancipation in Rhode Island, you know, you have these moments, but I was really struck 
by how long it takes for the legislature to finally abolish the institution of slavery. 1842, right? We're talking, you know, 20 years before the Civil War. Like, if you look at the census from like, you know, 1810, 1820, 1830, 1840, I think in 1840, there were like five enslaved people. Why is it that they take so long to just get rid of the institution? I've always thought about this as a hangover from the dependence on the business of slavery. So Rhode Islanders can disentangle themselves legally from slavery and uh, and the the actions of enslaved people themselves that see a small window and they just go nuts pushing against it. And you can see this happening. Like if you look at the gradual emancipation law and read it when the first people would be free, so many more people are free before that law would have freed anyone. And it's because they understand that they have, and when I say they, I'm talking about enslaved African-Americans, have an opportunity to really tear down at this institution that white people now in Rhode Island accept is not going to be a forever hereditary situation, right? Is it the, the way the emancipation law here works, and Connecticut operates in the same way, that uh, after March 1st, 1784, every child born to an enslaved woman will be free after serving, after a quick little fuss that the towns are going to be responsible and they say no, after serving the owner of its mother for 18 years of a boy, for a girl, 18 years of a girl, and 21 years of a boy. So the day after the Emancipation Act is passed, what has changed? Nothing has changed. Some people will be free at, in 18 years, and that goes on until, as you say, when the new constitution in 1842 is passed, there's actually an abolition of slavery. Textbooks still say by 1800, there were, um, slavery had been abolished in New England. New Hampshire abolishes slavery in 1858, two years before the Civil War. I mean, really? Um, so it's this slow development of freedom. What happens is, People see the handwriting on the wall. Black people run away. White people are more and more reluctant to spend the money to advertise for them because they kind of see the handwriting on the wall. But when Mr. Madison goes to the Constitutional Convention in 1787 and talks about the great problem being between the free states and the slave states, the free state of Rhode Island has almost 1,000 slaves. The free state of Connecticut has 3,000 slaves. But we're the free states. So there's this hypocrisy about about that. And so they're imagining themselves free before they were. And the reason why there's really any room to move is that Rhode Island, like New England, like the rest of the North, is much more invested in the business of slavery than they are in slave labor. And so let's turn to the manufacturing. What New England turns to making its money from, from textiles, and it was slave trading wealth that initially funded the Industrial Revolution in New England. It's the same names from the slave trade that end up in the manufacture? Well, the manufacturing bit in New England and in Rhode Island in particular is um, so full of ironies and hypocrisies that it's, it's, it's hard to, to begin. I mean, so you have an industry that is dependent upon slave labor. Um, and it's shocking to me that it's been within the last 
20 years or so, or in some cases, you know, the last couple of years, that mills have actually started talking about slavery as if the cotton fell from the sky. It's not a stretch. Um, It doesn't take any imagination to just simply ask the question, where did the raw material that you were dependent upon come from? And the answer is really evident. Enslaved people in the South. And in the case of Rhode Island, they're doubly dependent because then they manufacture that cotton. And when the Negro cloth mills are up and running, Negro cloth is this kind of coarse cotton wool mixed material that's made especially to clothe enslaved people in the American South. Then it gets shipped back and sold to them. So the Negro cloth mills that are dotting the landscape of Rhode Island throughout the first half of the 19th century, there's something like 80 mills at some point in existence. So it's like at every riverfall, um, you have slave-grown cotton expanding free white wage labor. Um, they are directly connected to one another. And then for Negro cloth mills, their only clients are slaveholders, right? Because nobody else is wearing this, which is why it's called Negro cloth. Um, and so it's absolutely absurd that there were ever talk about these mills without there not being talk about slavery. That omission, in my estimation, could never be by accident because it's just so obvious. It would be like going to take a tour of Wall Street and not talking about stocks, but instead talking about the computer systems and the chairs and the desk. And New England also. Rhode Island um, is a middleman for uh, made elsewhere, uh, uh, mostly elsewhere. Straw hats are made in New England to put on the heads of enslaved people because ins- you, even people of color um, who whose skin is more resistant to the sun get heat stroke. Okay, where do the axes, the hose, the the implements come from? Metal implements. They come from New England and are peddled. The hazards that that and it's the plantations that have this seemingly inexhaustible thirst for them. You can't make enough axe. You can't make enough hose because you are growing cotton, right? And the cotton kingdom is expanding. And you don't have any falls of water. Yeah. It, you know, that's the other thing. I mean, the, the south is, it, until you get to the Piedmont, is kind of, they're nice rivers, but they don't fall. So, so you have people yeah. <laughs> literally deforesting acres yeah. to create plantations. So there is this constant need for farming implements. And a a key thing here is that the South could only focus its economy so intensely on slave labor-powered large-scale plantations for export if A, a different region provided all the various things that were necessary to provision the slave economy with goods and capital, and B, somewhere else to buy the South's raw materials, and C, to do all the commercial work of of moving human and non-human commodities around. Explain what this interdependence, what it what it reveals about the U.S. economy being a whole rather than these two 
separate economies. Because I think often we think of the Civil War as like a uh, a contest between two competing systems. We had a free labor system and a slave system, like you know, kind of like the way we think about the Cold War. And you know, the the free labor system won. But what does this interdependence, which was so fundamental, reveal? Well, this interdependence was acknowledged by people at the time. The fiction came after the war. The myth-making came later on. Mill owners were very much concerned about not having a relationship with plantations, right? If you take someone like the Hazards, for example, you know, Roland Gibson Hazard was spending four to six months a year in the South on plantations, right? And then coming back North and railing against slavery in the legislature, right? That these connections were up close and personal, um, and that the fiction that the economy was separate is a myth that comes after the war. Because plantations where most Americans want to concentrate their understanding of American slavery did not exist in isolation. They can only function if they are getting provisions from elsewhere and people, um, and if there is a market for the product that is being produced. And so this comes from, I think, many Americans and many American historians wanting to locate slavery only on the plantation as a regional system instead of the national system that it was. And you just take something like the New York Stock Exchange. Before it was the New York Stock Exchange, they just called it the Cotton Exchange because that's what it was, because cotton was the number one export in the U.S. And outfits like Lehman Brothers got their start. Yes. Yeah. But the, the mayor of New York at the at when when South Carolina seceded from the union, the mayor of New York pulled together the city council and tried to get them to vote to secede with South Carolina because New York as and and that's a, an entertaining idea in so many ways. I mean, so here here would sit New York as a southern. But why? Because because New York is the bank for the south. Because all that entrance that banks are making money on are on southern plantations. And the dependency on metal goods comes back to bite the south, of course, when there's only one iron uh, uh, iron uh, foundry in the south during the cannon factory, Tredegar Ironworks. Why is there only one? Because there was no sense in developing it. We were sending them all the stuff they needed. We were sending them guns. We were sending them, um, we were making them here and making money on it. And then, um, oops, uh, they didn't have those developments because they depended on plantation slavery. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. Hey, this is Dan Denver, the host of the show you've been listening to. I'm cutting into this interview to tell you about a new film, Socialism, An American Story, My very dear and old friend Yael Bridge is making this smart and funny documentary about the history of socialism in the U.S. and its current resurgence. She's been filming for several years and is super close to finishing. Right now, she is rushing to fundraise so that the documentary can be out in time for the primary voting season, where it can make the most impact. It's a movie you'll be able to show your friends to help explain why we're socialist, and why it's a real thing in the U.S. Bernie's latest tax returns notwithstanding, there aren't too many rich socialists out there. So the filmmakers need ordinary socialists like you to donate at socialismmovie.com 
That's where you can get to their Kickstarter. It's at socialismmovie.com. Christy, you write that, quote, the impact of this awareness on the study of the anti-slavery movement has been limited, and most studies focus on the moral and political commitments to ending slavery rather than the economic realities of moral complicity in Southern slaveholding. But you also write that calling, quote, anti-slavery manufacturers hypocrites trivializes the complexities of Northern opposition to and support for Southern slaveholding. Explain what you're arguing here and why why you say this notion of hypocrisy, what it obscures about the, the deep economic complicity. So, yeah, so it's complex. And so what I meant by that, you can't just get away with calling somebody like Roland Gibson Hazard a hypocrite. Was and these his, are the Kersey sellers from Yeah, these are the Negro class sellers from um, Peacedale, Rhode Island. Who consider themselves anti-slavery. Yes. He rails against slavery in the Rhode Island state legislature, but he also spends four to six months a year peddling Negro cloth throughout the South, spending nights on plantations, taking orders of the measurements of enslaved people. But he also knows that free black sailors are often being kidnapped and being accused of being slaves. And he hires a lawyer to help them with their plight. Um, I I have not fully got my head around him. Um, and but but I think his critique of slavery is if we're going to have this institution that one states have a right to decide if they're going to have this institution. My state has decided not to. The states I work in have decided to that it's it needs to be kind of the letter of the law. Like if, if you're going to have slavery, you can't have the situation where free black sailors from the South find themselves illegally held in captivity in the South. And, you know, I can't get into the head of Roland Gibson Hazard, but I have to think just as a human and the mental gymnastics that are going on, that he has to be working out some kind of level of guilt for his family's complicity uh, in Southern slaveholding because those are all of their customers. It's not like, oh, a portion of my customers hold slaves. No, every one of my customers hold slaves. But like, I'm going to make sure they hold them right, you know, and that they're not having people who shouldn't be in bondage in bondage, that we really do have to tease through the complexities. And he's not alone. There's other businessmen in the North that are directly and deeply invested in slavery that are troubled by slavery. You know, I think in some sense, it, it, it's a contemporary issue. I mean, there are many of us who, you know, have phones that we know come from places that have horrible labor practices or wear clothes. And I'm not trying to um, excuse people's behaviors, especially somebody like Roland Gibson Hazard, who saw slavery up close and personal. It's not like he was some distant investor. He spent nights on plantations. He knew exactly um, how ugly slavery could be. Um, but he's also operating in a system in which slavery is normal. It's also the case that in this time period, Hazard, um, one of the other things he does is he finds an enslaved woman in the South who's a northerner who shouldn't be enslaved and sort of tries to save her and, and get her back to the north. Um, which brings us to the idea, in this time period, there's, there's also enormous violence and mob violence against uh, free people of color in the north. There's this idea that 
for example, states, northern states like Rhode Island and Connecticut are creating, um, are trying to create laws that keep other Negroes out, but our Negroes are okay. So you have riots in Providence provoked partly because a Providence newspaper man is saying, well, those are Boston people. Those are Boston blacks. They're not ours. Boston has a riot saying they're Providence blacks. If you look at the census, nobody's going actually much of anywhere because what's happening is that while slave, former slaveholders knew their former slaves, the sons of slaveholders and sons and daughters don't know the sons and daughters of enslaved people. There, there's a, a gradual alienation as they, they move to the margins. They're forced into marginal areas. And, and so they're, who's ours? But that notion of ours is a proprietary idea. So Roland Hazard can say, well, that woman in this, who's enslaved in the South, she's, she's ours. She shouldn't be enslaved. We took care of that. But theirs are their problem which is a way of extending the ownership of enslavement and the paternalism to en- and paternalism to encompass free people of color how dare they take our people our people and put them right. in bondage but what they do to their people is that's, their problem that's their issue even though you and know, it makes I us rich against it. and it, i really give it it makes us rich and you also asked me about why there's so much focus on like the moral aspect of it and i think it's because that's what makes contemporary people feel better. I remember in school thinking that the abolitionist movement was like this mass movement and being really indignant when I found out that it was like this teeny tiny movement of people who most people thought were crazy um, and that anti-abolitionism, you know, could swallow it up several times over. And mainstream anti-slavery sentiment was often most focused on those things that Northerners considered examples of the slave power oppressing them, the yes. Fugitive Slave Act, westward expansion, which would expand their power. Yeah, the Free Soil the Movement is all about uh, making sure that there isn't going to be any enslaved competition for white laborers. It isn't about because slavery is bad, it's because competition is bad. The support and for anti- colonization. Yeah, and that the anti slavery movement is deeply racist, right? That this idea that you're anti slavery meant that you um, believed in black equality couldn't be further from the truth. The anti-slavery movement was, okay, free black people need to leave and we need to have spaces free of black people, period, whether they're free or enslaved. Hence the American Colonization Society, which gets gets support up and down the northern coast. Support to ship them back, you understand, back. People who haven't been in Africa in 200 years, but back and then we will... It'll it'll foster the end of slavery. Well, no, that's really not their motivation. The motivation is it will restore the white republic we fondly imagine we once had, which, of course, we never had. We just discussed how the excessive emphasis on radical abolitionists as if they were the mainstream in the North, let alone even in the anti-slavery world of the North, how that really distorts history. My last question then is how we should think about that small number of radical abolitionists, black and white, in terms of how we can actually think about how a small minority can, amidst rapidly changing circumstances, 
become a powerful force that helps transform the world? I would take apart your question a little bit because the idea that radical abolitionism or abolitionism at all of any sort, and there were a variety of kinds, a lot of colonizationists would think of themselves as anti-slavery, but this wide variety of of anti-slavery people, the idea that it ultimately made a great change, I don't think is the case. Um, Mr. Lincoln went into the, got himself elected saying, we will not touch the slavery where it is. We will only keep it out of the territories. And as I say, that's about more about competition. The, the South thinks otherwise and thinks, yeah, he's going to go after us and they want opportunity to go into the territories with slavery if they choose. And so they begin to secede. The initial uh, Emancipation Proclamation is a war, a war effort. It's an effort to burden the South with free people who will not, free people of color who will not work. So the idea that abolitionism, in any sense, ultimately prevails, I think, is a mistaken idea, or it's a contributing factor to a complex situation that creates change over time. The fact that Connecticut and I think Wisconsin vote against the 15th Amendment because they don't want uh, black people voting? Are you kidding me? I mean, they're northern states. They can't conceive of it um, that way. And, you know, I I agree with Joanne. Um, The abolitionist movement can really only be seen as you know, a victory if we stay with the simplistic story of the Civil War, right? So emancipation only becomes a war aim after hundreds of thousands of enslaved people lobby the Union Army, right? Like, Emancipation doesn't just happen because, you know, Lincoln was talking to people and said it's time to end slavery. Before the Emancipation Proclamation, you get the first Confiscation Act and the second Confiscation Act. And these acts are in direct response to what enslaved people themselves do. Over 500,000 enslaved people run to union lines and offer their service, their knowledge and their assistance. And initially, the Union Army turns them away, just like initially. Sends them back. Sends them back. And initially, the Union Army doesn't even let free black men in the North enlist. But they keep insisting. And the generals, you know, are saying to Lincoln to turn these people away. It's like to pick up a gun when they drop it and hand it back to them. So it is enslaved people themselves, it is free black people themselves that make the Civil War about emancipation. And we can see it very clearly if you investigate the first and second confiscation acts that say that you can take runaways as contraband of war because they're coming to the union lines and the union wasn't expecting it. They didn't know what to do with them initially. So it's enslaved people themselves that make the war about emancipation. And then Lincoln comes to it. This is how we're going to win. We're going to enlist black men in the Union Army, and we're going to deprive the South of what they need the most, which is slave labor. So it becomes a war aim. It doesn't start out that way. And even when it, when, when he 
he has caught the flash about, yes, this is the way we're going to win the war. And he is enlisting uh, in formerly enslaved men who have run to the Union Army. You have a situation like Camp Nelson in, in uh, Kentucky, which is a major black enlistment place. It's, it's a, a, a camp where fugitive slaves are welcomed, trained, and they become soldiers. Now, what happens to their wives and children when they've run away? Well, they'll be treated very badly by the owner who notices that Henry has gone to fight and here's Samantha. So what women and children do is follow the camp. They come to the camp, Camp Nelson. So this is after we have recognized that, that enslaved people want to fight and are good at it, and in fact, with them we can win the war. Nonetheless, the um, commander of Camp Nelson gets tired of the constant stream of wives and children who come, and on the coldest November night thus far in Kentucky history, he orders the men, to, the white soldiers, to destroy the housing, the, 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 the shacks and little houses that the, the families have set up, and drives them into the cold, and 100, I think it's 106 of them perish of uh, exposure. So this, this is not a moment when, of embrace of black freedom or human rights of black people. This is a, still a grudging kind of utilitarian desire to, I know, we can turn these people into a winning strategy. And, and they do. But, but they're still not seeing these people as, as, I would argue, as fully feeling, thinking human beings. It takes a long time. And I might argue in some ways white America has not yet come to that, that feeling. Certainly a lot of people in white America have not, um, have not embraced that feeling yet. Well, Christy Clark Pujara and Joanne Mellish, thank you very much. Thank you. Christy Clark Pujara is an historian in the Department of Afro-American Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and the author of Dark Work, The Business of Slavery in Rhode Island. Joanne Mellish recently retired as a professor of history at the University of Kentucky and is currently a visiting scholar in the American Studies Department at Brown. She is the author of Disowning Slavery, Gradual Emancipation, and Race in New England, 1780 to 1860. Today's last interview is with Emily Owens, a professor of history at Brown, where she is also a faculty fellow at the Center for the Study of Slavery and Justice. Her research and teaching focus is on the history of sexuality in U.S. slavery, women's history, and feminist theory. Emily Owens, welcome to The Dig. Thank you. It's nice to be here. You open an article with this remarkable passage from an 1822 document entitled 
the laws of Las Siete Partitas, which are still in force in the state of Louisiana. And that passage reads, quote, a female slave will become free when her master puts her in a brothel that he may profit by her. To open this discussion, explain how Spanish law related sexual labor to slavery, and then how later American law in Louisiana dealt with this, and how the American approach ultimately developed this, this new approach to enslave sexual labor that further hardened the color line and restricted manumission. Just for context, um, Louisiana was a territory that was held by the French and by the Spanish in different sort of moments of succession throughout the colonial period, and then eventually came into American hands in 1803 um, and became part of sort of U.S. empire and expansion across the continent. Before the Americans showed up or took over or um, were sort of handed the land, really, after uh, the Haitian Revolution, um, the Spanish set up a series of laws to to sort of formalize the norms that they wanted to see happen in the slave system. And those laws drew from but also evolved out of this series of co codes that's part of the early modern Spanish uh, legal code, which governed Spain and its colonies called Las Siete, Siete Partidas. So that set of legal codes um, kind of trans transmuted several times throughout the multiple sort of imperial changes in Louisiana territory. And this particular law that I found when I was doing archival research is a weird one, and that's why I am kind of a little bit obsessed with it. So there's kind of the larger framework of the Code Noir, which is the French code for slavery, or the Codigo Negro, which is the, uh, the Spanish code for slavery, or the Black Code, which is the American code for slavery. And uh, all three of those codes were meant to regulate enslaved people and white people who were interacting with enslaved people. And that's kind of true throughout these different kind of colonial moments. Um, but this particular law was actually no longer enforced. Um, the Americans, when they were rewriting their legal code in, in at various stages, but in this case in 1822, they were kind of going back through the imperial legacies of the Spanish and making sure that the people who were currently living in the territory in 1822 and then later in 1825 understood that there were some things that they didn't want to do anymore. And so the Spanish law that you mentioned, I call it the brothel law, um, it's related uh, to a practice called cortacion, which is a Spanish framework for thinking about modes of manumission for enslaved people. And so um, that's something that lots of other people have written much more extensively on than I have, but kind of in an incredibly simplistic way. Um, the Spanish understood that enslaved people could maintain sort of a single right, and that right was um, a right to develop an avenue towards your own freedom. And for the Spanish, developing an avenue to, towards your own freedom could look like going to court or could look like kind of suing for your freedom. But more importantly for them was kind of a sort of contract through which enslaved people could make an agreement with an owner or with some other powerful person to buy their freedom from them over time. And so this brothel law um, in which the Spanish 
did, which the Spanish did enforce and which the Americans kind of went out of their way to say, this is no longer part of our project. We're not into this. Um, the, the, the Spanish version of the law essentially said that brothel labor was one mode through which enslaved people could practice cortacion. So there are lots of modes through which enslaved people could purchase their freedom cumulatively over time. So they could do extra labor on the side of the labor that the person who owned them wanted them to do, and they could collect a little bit of money and over time, you know, give that money um, in exchange for their own freedom. And not only does brothel labor, labor count, but it's kind of a special case. We want to go out of our way to name that this kind of labor is a pathway to freedom and should be a pathway to freedom. Um, and so then the Americans later on um, – went out of their way to say, this is no longer enforced. We don't, we don't want to do this. And the, the reason that's interesting to me is because what that suggests to me is that the Americans saw this happening, saw this practice continuing to happen. And so one thing that legal historians talk a little bit about is the difference between formal law and informal law. And I think that this moment in the law in which the sort of American – imperial project is saying, hey, we're here now and our sovereign structure says this particular practice of utilizing sex to get to freedom is not something that we want to reify. It's not something we want to go out of our way to say this is not this is not what we want to do. That to me is a suggestion that there's actually this inf this informal or customary practice that's still ongoing that they need to get in front of. People don't make laws for things that aren't happening. Right? We don't need to make a law for something that we either think is good and that we want to keep happening. There's not really a ton of positive law in Louisiana. It's mostly negative law, especially in the criminal and civil law. So we want to make laws for things that we want to get in front of and say, this is not okay. And in this case, this is a weird law because it's not really making a specific claim. It's not articulating a new law that says brothel labor should not create freedom, and it's not saying brothel labor is illegal or something. But instead, it's sort of saying, hey, everybody, you know that practice that you've been continuing to do for all of these years since the Spanish went away? We know you're doing that. We don't really want you to do that anymore. And so just so you know, that pathway that the Spanish created is gone. We are no longer going to enforce that pathway. Why does that happen? Things were by no means, you know, humane and lovely under Spanish rule, but American rule ultimately meant a real hardening of the boundaries between black and white and slave and free. What, what does this reveal about the role of, of slavery under those two different systems and the different roles that, that race-making, racism, gender were called upon to serve under these changing political and economic circumstances? It's fairly well accepted, I think, as a historical, historiographic consensus that racial structures under Spanish imperial rule in, in the Atlantic world were maybe more fluid or something than American structures. I think that's kind of a baseline that we, as, as historians of the Atlantic world, work from. And also, it's something I think that is kind of always up for grabs. Because when we talk about race making or the hardening of racial boundaries that you're talking about, it's incredibly piecemeal and it's incredibly um, kind of comes and goes and changes because of context. And Louisiana is a place that's particularly weird or at least particularly explicit about those kinds of things. And so when we talk about the – when you're sort of suggesting the, the hardening of racial boundaries that – uh, is more important in the American imperial project than in the Spanish. I think uh, that's I, I'm I'm with you, and I think that you know the Spanish and the French tended to be in their legal regimes more permissive of interracial sexual contact than the British and than the Americans were. 
at the same time, American obsession with uh, kind of binary racial structures, um, I think is not so hard and fast as we kind of tend to think that it is. Or that the law would suggest that it is. Uh, yeah, that the law would suggest that it is, but I think even, I mean, I think the Black Code is an, is a good example of, like, lots of places where, uh, the Black Code in Louisiana is a good example of lots of places where distinctions between black and white and slave and free are really, um, kind of coterminous, right? Slave and black and, and white and free are really tightly linked. On the other hand, the Black Code is full of, the Black Code in Louisiana is full of suggestions and moments in which, lots of other people are named as racial others, right? In which uh, mulattoes and mustees and quadroons show up. And and they're kind of implicitly, again and again, located alongside kind of the category of slave and black. And yet there's tons of free people of color in Louisiana territory and then in Louisiana when it becomes a state. There's tons of people who traverse boundaries of freedom and slavery throughout their lifetimes. There's tons of people who we would think of as white who are enslaved. There's tons of enslaved people who, uh, there's tons of, of people who we would think of as black who either gained their freedom or were born free. So Louisiana is a pretty weird place for thinking about race in the 19th century. I think um, the kind of political and cultural uh, trend in the 19th century in, in the U.S. South and the U.S. in general is to move toward a kind of hardening of racial boundaries. But I think it's not quite as linear or um, straightforward as we might want it to be in telling a story of sort of Spanish and then French and then U.S. I think it's pretty, pretty, pretty weird, honestly. Stepping back, why, why did sex and sex work constantly find itself in the middle of slavery as an economic, social, and political institution? And at the same time, why was it that questions around sex and reproduction Define these shifting legal boundaries, the shifting legal boundaries between slavery and freedom? Well, I'll start with the second piece, which is, I think, somewhat illuminated a little bit by the earlier histories of the Spanish and the French, because there are these loopholes um, that are made more explicit in uh, the Código Negro and in the Code Napoleon, which is the which is one French code that arrives in the um, in in this story. Um, and, and that has to do with intimacy. So I think that part of the reason why sex and sex reproductive and otherwise becomes part of the story of slavery's weirdness is, as you say, the sort of shifting boundaries of slavery and freedom is because it's intimate, right? Because we're talking about bodies and people in contact. And I don't actually think of sex as like particular, most of the time, I don't think of it as a particularly isolated category of intimacy. I think that there's an immense amount of proximity built into slavery kind of as a project and even sort of the, the con- more contained US, U.S. slavery project, kind of thinking about that on its own. There are all sorts of sites of, of proximity and affectively charged proximity between enslaved people and owners or non-enslaved people who may or may not be owners. And so I think that those zones of proximity, whether they are cohabitating in a household, whether they are sexual contact, whether they are, um, you know, relationality, right, like sort of kin, kin relationships, right? So 
Annette Gordon-Reed writes about and talks about the cover of law and the ways that the law essentially covered over the many, many, many kind of intimate bonds that existed between people who would have been understood as white and people who would have been understood as non-white which is to say the reproductive histories of slavery. So there's all of these ways in which people are very close to each other, biologically, sexually, emotionally, domestically, just geographically. And so I think that it's incredibly important to me as a legal historian to think really carefully about when and where and how the categories of slavery and freedom gained meaning because they had an immense amount of legal meaning. But I also think that they are not as clear. We're not as clear to the people who occupied them as we might think that they are, or we're not always as meaningful as we think that they are. And so I think that as a historian of slavery, the presumption is that we kind of know what we're talking about when we say that someone's enslaved. And then as soon as you start to scratch the surface, at least when I do the research that I do, which is very much about intimate relationships and about, and by intimate, let me also clarify, I don't mean pleasant. I just mean close. So, you know, the kind of work that I do often encounter means that I often encounter people in the archive who are um, moving between the legal categories of slavery and freedom or are not necessarily moving legally, do not necessarily change their legal status over a lifetime, but their life changes, right? Their capacity to move freely might change. Their linguistic capacity or their literacy level might change. The capacity for their children to be educated might change. And so for me, beginning to think about categories of slavery and freedom and whether or not and when they kind of become harder or less hard um, is often about thinking about kind of the materiality of what do we mean when we say freedom? What do we mean when we say slavery? I think all too often those categories are tossed into the conversation as though we all know what we're talking about. And I don't actually think that historians think we know what we're talking about. I think historians, for the most part, when we're, when we're kind of trying to interrogate, or not even interrogate, when we're trying to investigate the history of U.S. slavery or slavery writ large, it becomes very clear very quickly that context matters tremendously and that, that you know, I think the materiality matters a lot. In terms of the materiality that shaped this, these sort of like fraught moments of, of intimacy, what, what role did the threat posed by interracial reproduction play in that in terms of clouding the, blurring the line yeah. in terms of, of, uh, of who is an enslaved child and thus threatening the intergenerational heritability of, of, of slavery as an institution? Yeah. So I think that um, kind of fundamentally reproduction gets in the way of creating clear boundaries between slavery and freedom, or at least should theoretically. But then it doesn't in practice because very early on the British sort of give us a very tidy legal project, part of Secretary Ventrum, which is established in 1662 Virginia to sort of say anyone who's born of a slave is a slave. And so it suddenly doesn't really matter what the parentage is, right, or what the paternity of an enslaved woman's child is. Um, I think in terms of the visual landscape of the U.S. South, you know, there, and again, Louisiana becomes, I think, really interesting in this way, the kind of blurring of slave and free that we might presume if we were to look at, like, a bunch of enslaved people lined up in a row and maybe they were lined up on, a, like, a color gradient. I think that, a, that like, a contemporary listener or contemporary onlooker would look at that and say, well, that person over there is probably more free because she looks more white, and that person over there is probably less free because she looks more black. I don't think that that was nearly as problematic for 19th century folks walking around. I think that 
reproduction sort of poses an important theoretical problem to the project of trying to make it really clear in a visual landscape who's, who's enslaved and who's free. And also, it was a very normal practice in Louisiana for white people to be enslaved. And by which I mean people who we would perceive visually in this present moment as white. I don't think that was so upsetting. On the other hand, there was a, really a, a nice kind of handful of legal cases in um, 19th century Louisiana in which people who look white mobilize that, right? They say, okay, I'm enslaved and I'm white. And I know that that's a theoretical problem for the laws of slavery. And so I'm going to march into court and I'm going to say I'm too white to be a slave. So the case of Alexina Morrison, which others have written about, is I think one of many examples of women who are sort of saying, I think, doing a really interesting kind of intellectual calculation. They're saying to themselves, all right, I may or may not have an investment in a kind of what we might think of as like a black freedom struggle, right? They're not, they may or may not actually want to disinvest from the logics of slavery, but they want themselves to be out of, they're, they're kind of like, I want my body to be out of slavery. So what's one day, way that I can do that if I have blonde hair and blue eyes and I have lived in slavery for as long as I've lived? Well, I can go to court and I can say, listen, I'm wrongfully enslaved. I think that the, the kind of question of, the question of strategy is really important in thinking about historical actors. And when I look at the women that, I, that are in my study, you know, I think it's, it's complicated because they don't always do the thing that maybe as like someone who's invested in a narrative of a kind of collective struggle might want them to do, right? They're not marching into court and saying slavery is wrong. Let's, let's, let's abolish slavery. They're marching into court and saying... I don't want to be enslaved, and I think I've got a pretty good argument against it. And I think that there are sort of um, kind of classic historiographic argument articulated by Eugene Genovese that sort of says there are modes of resistance to slavery that are kind of authentic resistance that actually work against the system. And then there are modes of what he calls accommodation to slavery that don't really uh, break down the system as a whole, but that might help sort of in a temporary way for a single person or for a small group of people. And he's really interested in dis dis disentangling those two things and I think validating one and kind of undercutting the other. I think more contemporary historians like Stephanie Camp have said there's a lot of different ways that people are resisting slavery and to kind of suggest that only a superstructure level way of resistance um, counts uh, is discounting the work of lots of people and in particular discounting the work of women. Yeah, uh, along those lines, you write that quote, Historians lack a language to describe sex that was sold by enslaved laborers. And you write that the focus is too often on attempting to discern the agency of yeah. enslaved women or even to decipher the, the interiority of their erotic lives. What's wrong with this approach that is so fixated on discerning women's agency? What does that fixation reveal? And what's a better way to do the scholarship? So I think that the fixation on women's agency is, is inherited in our scholarship because historians of slavery have for a very long time and for very good reasons been interested in articulating essentially black choice making under the context of slavery. And I think that that makes a lot of sense um, or it made a lot of sense in the beginning, which is to say that there is a very long historiography that uh, you know, from the late 19th to the almost late 20th century that suggested essentially that uh, black people were not fully human, that the kind of, quote, dehumanizing project of 
slavery did its job. And I think that historians uh, who kind of, you know, gave us the new social history were saying, hey, 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 we're going to inherit the thinking of the mid-20th century social movements and we're going to say, wait a minute. We've got to find the agency. We've got to find the humanity. We've got to put that back into like a social history move. Exactly. Yeah. So I think that that's that's kind of the hallmark of early social history is to say, hey, you know, black folks were human. Hey, poor folks were human. Hey, women were human. And I think that it's easy as as contemporary writers and thinkers to look back on that moment and think of it as kind of silly. But I don't think it's silly at all. I think it was a really really critical turning point and a corrective. For a corrective, exactly. Revising a set of historiographies that were either ignoring the fact that people had existed, right? So uh, Jennifer Morgan says really beautifully in Laboring Women, the first thing we need to kind of know is that women were there, right? And so so kind of putting people back into the story. But then also um, uh, uh, making sure that when they were in the story that they were there as actors. I think generations of historiography later, we have more complicated ideas about what choice might mean and what agency might mean. And, 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 and I think the presumption that we might, uh, as Walter Johnson writes, give, give slaves back their agency is sort of problematic because we should presume it's there in the first place. So in terms of the, the, the sex work piece and, and thinking about enslaved women and the focus on their agency, for me, um, there's two things. One is that I follow Walter Johnson's kind of articulation of agency as a project of liberal humanism and trying to think about what it might have meant to be someone who who not only was kind of legally and politically and socially inscribed as a non-subject, right, to kind of think about what that kind of way of living is, but also to presume, and this is a presumption of my research, that these women understood that, that they, that they weren't walking around thinking that they were little Thomas Jeffersons, that they knew exactly what their social lo- location was and that they were working within that. And so for me, when I look at my archive, I don't see women who are sort of saying to themselves, huh, how might I make an agential, sh- an agential choice right now? I see them looking at a really complicated situation in which they have very little power, but they have some, in which they are potentially stuck um, and in which lots of material conditions matter regardless of or in addition to their legal status. You cite this uh, line from Walter Johnson, humanness lived outside of the conventions of liberal agency. Yeah. What does that, what, like, what does that look like? Because I think we inhabit the, this liberal, liberal humanist world. It's pretty pervasive. It's pretty he- hegemonic. So how do, you, how do you think outside of something that is like, the epistemological bedrock of how we think and live in the world. Well, right. Yeah. I mean, it's hard. I think it's really hard. And I don't think very many of us have gotten it right. And I certainly don't think I have. But I think that that for me, when I'm looking at the the women who I find in my archives, I think my reading practice is really trying hard. And honestly, I think that it's really hard. And I don't know how successful I am at this. And but I think, I think lots of historians are trying to pull this off, um, are trying to look at these women's lives and take them for their, like, kind of take them at their word for what they are saying. So, you know, if, if one of the presumptions of a kind of liberal humanist 
project is that freedom is a thing and that the autonomous subject is moving to that thing. There are not a lot of moments when I hear my subjects talking about freedom. And I could presume that they have false consciousness and that they just don't know how great freedom is. I could presume that they uh, don't think freedom is possible for them. And so they're making other kinds of choices. And I have started to presume that they just sort of think freedom's not that relevant to them. Not that it's good or bad or that they're sad that they can't have it, but that it's just like not really the organizing principle of their lives. There are other organizing principles like belonging. Do I know the street names? Do I have people who have my back? Do I speak the language? Do I have the capacity to move about a physical location or a geographic location without being bothered by people? How might I achieve those things? And I guess that we could project a kind of framing onto that and say, well, they're trying to get freedom because freedom means mobility or freedom means, you know, capacity to do what you want. That's kind of true within that imaginary. But I'm not convinced that that was someone like Anne-Maria Barclay's imaginary. I think she's sort of thinking like, well, how am I going to get from today to tomorrow? And what kinds of maneuvers can I make that are going to facilitate that? And I guess, you know, this, this is part of what I mean by the reading practice being tricky and the writing practice being really tricky because, of course, those are choices, right? She is, of course, making choices. But I, I'm just trying to kind of ventilate a little bit the space between everyday actions and strategies and, you know, intellectual work of understanding your own world from having all of that have to be choice and having that all have to be freedom. You write that you, quote, theorize the violence of the law itself, as well as the law's complicity in acute violence against enslaved women, offering the framework of ordinary violence to describe the ways that the law made violence against enslaved women essentially an oxymoron. And the flip side of this, I suppose, or something related to this, is the construction of the figure of the black male rapist of white women as the as the iconic criminal, which is related to the law that you mentioned earlier, that the way you define who a slave is is who's born to an enslaved woman. So what really is most problematic in that setup is a black man having a child with a white woman. So my question is, is is this critique of, of theorizing the law itself, does it lend itself to a critique of the way people think through sexual violence through the lens of criminality? Does the racist history of rape laws offer any lessons for the way rape and sexual assault today are so often treated primarily through a carceral framework? So when I talk about ordinary violence, what I'm trying to do is think about, I'm really, and this is very much in progress, I'm really trying to understand what it means when sort of violence done to a person, to the body, isn't criminal, which is a lot of violence then and now. And I'm trying to understand what that feels like. And I'm trying to understand what I think the women who endured and survived slavery understood, which is that they there was no space, legally at least, in which they could seek redress for the violence that they experienced or in which they could be sort of 
heard or recognized. And so as a kind of contemporary feminist who's inherited a set of essentially second wave ideas about breaking silences, which are, I think, incredibly important ideas, that framework of breaking silences and sort of saying, I can, I can stop being silent. I can, I can uh, project my voice and my version of what happened to me, and maybe I might be heard. Now, when, when second wave feminists say that, say we have to break the silence on sexual violence or we have to break the silence on domestic abuse, they're not, I think, they're not being naive and saying, and now the law and the politicians are going to hear us and it's going to be awesome. But there is a presumption that someone might hear you. And I am trying to understand whether or not there was anyone who might have heard the women in my study. I think possibly themselves, like each other. I think possibly there's kind of like some internal communities. And I also see these women going to the court and trying to negotiate better situations for themselves. So it's not like they were totally existing in this like silo. But I'm really trying to understand what the internal and affective experience of experiencing violation to your own body and experiencing that as completely normalized in a society as ordinary. So criminal law is essentially one way to map a society's sort of sense of its own boundaries, sense of kind of where the normal ends and where the kind of aberration begins, where the thing that we don't want to have happen begins. And in 19th century Louisiana, uh, the rape of a, of a non-white woman um, was not criminalized. And that's a little bit compl- – I'm glossing that a little bit, but essentially that's, that's kind of true. A series of laws work together to produce that problem. So, you know, that's, it's not, that's not at all surprising, and historians have known that for a long time, that, that um, violence done to an enslaved person kind of period, but specifically sexual violence done to a woman of color was not just – was not criminalized and also was not – was kind of permitted and encouraged by the society. So I'm trying to understand what that violence means to the people who experienced it and who, who lived through it. And I am trying to make the claim that the social context of violence changes not just kind of the cultural meaning of the violence, but also the internal experience of that violence. That if violence is kind of a presumed, that if everyone around you from the moment you have been born presumes that your body is an object, that your body belongs to someone else, and that your sexual body is, exists sort of exclusively for the pleasure of other people, um, and that pleasure is often and, and is always kind of shot through with mastery, with domination, with ownership, et cetera, um, along with other things, I'm sure. I'm trying to understand what it means to, 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 to be in that body. And that's kind of what the framing of ordinary violence is trying to do. I guess what I'm trying to get at is what, what does the violence of the law that you've, that you've been researching what does it tell us about the potential of the law as a solution to violence? As a legal historian, when I'm looking at legal codes, what I'm really looking at is sort of like a billion piecemeal attempts to shape a society. And often these piecemeal attempts indicate the anxieties of lawmakers. They indicate 
the anxieties of a society, the stuff that they're worried about that they want to sh- that they want to make sure that they take a claim to. So, to the extent that the laws of slavery were violent, they were not also a haven or a refuge for people who are experiencing that violence as enslaved people. At the same time, legal changes uh, were extremely meaningful and impactful for enslaved people, um, and they fought for them. Right? They weren't. They weren't enslaved people. I, I shouldn't say enslaved people as a whole, but the people in my study are almost exclusively women of color who went to court because they thought that it could be some kind of avenue. And what I see them doing is using a legal system that is absolutely in every way stacked against them and finding like weird little loopholes. And there's also something to be said for their lawyers who I write almost nothing about, but that's interesting too. It's like, who are the different people who are involved in this thing called the law? It's not just like a, a monolith that exists and people go to it, right? It's, it's actually like a living thing. A lot thing. of actual humans. Right, who are, who are interpreting and who are, a lot of the lawyers in, the, in, in my book are working on both sides, right? Like they're just, they're just arguing cases who, of people who can pay them. So it doesn't really matter. So anyway, the point is that I think enslaved people understood the law as a tool that was structuring the society that they lived in. And also they didn't give up on it and they used it to their own ends. And then of course there are much larger scale, um, better examples of that. When you think about the abolitionist movement, right? When you think about the 13th amendment, which I think actually really does matter, you know? Um, so things like that. But then in terms of the contemporary resonance for that, I don't, I teach a class called Consent, Race, Sex, and the Law, and we talk about sexual violence. And, you know, basically one through line in the class is that we pretty much as a group consistently come to the conclusion that the law is crap and that, like, there's nothing that that consistently over U.S. history, which is the kind of boundary of the class, there's no moment in which the law has really effectively protected women against sexual violence. At the same time you know, what that ends up kind of that recursive move in the class as a group week by week, just sort of saying, oh God, there's nothing we can do. This is so terrible. This is never going away. And we are still fighting the same battles. As a historian, I know that's not true. And we're not actually still fighting the same battles. We're fighting different versions of the same battles and they appear and and get recreated in different ways. And I think the the kind of uh, interrogation of the law as kind of a critical problem for shaping, permitting, and facilitating violence against women has to exist at the, at, at the intersection with a kind of best of a bad situation kind of move. Well, this is the tool that is continuing to structure U.S. society, and therefore it's one of them. And so we also continue to return to it as feminists, I think, to sort of say, well, what's and the next thing? What's the next over, kind of I, move that we can make to try to ask one more question drilling down on this. Like, it seems like one of the, the – a real tension at the core of this is that we currently simultaneously have widespread impunity for sexual violence and mass incarceration. Yeah. It, it, that's a tough knot to um, – how, how, do we, how do you begin to think through that knot? Yeah. Well, I don't think that the law and – the carceral state are the same thing. And I think that, you know, they're extremely deeply linked in this moment. I think that kind of an abolitionist project and an anti-sexual violence project are not fundamentally opposed. Um, And I think there are people who are much smarter than me who are working on this contemporary question um, who understand that. And I think that community protections and that sort of rethinking community dynamics is a big part of this. But I think that when I look at the women 
who were trying to preserve their own bodies in the 19th century and were turning to the courts to do it. I don't think that they were looking at the court and saying, this place is going to protect me or that it's set up to protect me, but they were using whatever tools that they had available to them. And they, those tools were not exclusive to the court, right? They were also using their communities. They were also using, you know, sort of their own wherewithal. And so I just, I don't think that a carceral project or a carceral feminism um, is necessary for thinking about a world without sexual violence. Emily Owens, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Emily Owens is a professor of history at Brown University, where she is also a faculty fellow at the Center for the Study of Slavery and Justice. Her research and teaching focus is on the history of sexuality in U.S. slavery, women's history, and feminist theory. Keep your eyes out for our next episode from the symposium, which will feature interviews with Seth Rockman, Crystal Eddins, Zachary Sell, Akia Bernard, Marco McWilliams, Elon Cook-Lee, and Joey Laneve de Francesco. Special thanks to Joey, who has been my partner in crime from the beginning in making this symposium happen, and to Julia Rock, the indispensable organizer of all things logistical. Julia is also our new communications coordinator, replacing Logan Dreher, who is heading off to foment revolution in California. Logan, you are greatly appreciated and will be dearly missed. And also to Seth Rockman, who offered critical advice and assistance. And a lot of people to thank today, I know, a special thanks to Daniel Toman for building thedigradio.com and to Joshua Keston for helping out on the website big time. I would also like to thank the symposium's supporters and sponsors, Demand Progress, Old Slater Mill Historic Landmark, the Center for Reconciliation, the Blackstone Valley Tourism Council, the Blackstone Valley Visitor Center, Brown University's History Department, Africana Studies Department, the Taubman Center for American Politics and Policy, the Center for Study of Slavery and Justice, the Office of Institutional Diversity and Inclusion, the Center for the Study of Race and Ethnicity in America, and the Swearer Center. And last, but certainly far from least, the Rhode Island Council of Humanities. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that, in the United States of North America, every independent movement of the workers was paralyzed so long as slavery disfigured a part of the republic. Labor cannot emancipate itself in the white skin, where in the black it is branded. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, usually once, sometimes twice. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Julia Rock. Our managing editor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio. And please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. Also, please take a moment to leave us a review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. What also does that is you telling other people about the show. All propaganda on our behalf is greatly appreciated. 
And please do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to help keep this operation going strong. Even a few bucks is a huge help. Thank you.